Welcome to the latest episode of High Output AI, where Tom and Elliot talk AI and the tools and technologies that make AI happen. I'll see when we start. Wow. <laughs> what great introduction music you just heard. Hot off the press. Yeah, assuming, assuming Tom sends it to me before I finish editing. Uh, that was our new intro music, so I hope you liked that. Um, look, folks, welcome back. Episode 19. Hope you are all doing really, really well. Uh, but Tom, how are you, mate? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I get to drink an alcoholic beverage because I've switched time zones. I'm now in New York, uh, here for the next week. And um, yeah, then I'll be back in Oz and we'll be doing, it might even be the next podcast is in person. Maybe maybe twenty won't be in person, but anyway, we'll figure it out. Very very cool. And mate, you know, you're making big assumptions there about how early in the day I'll drink an alcoholic <laughs> beverage. But uh, fair enough. So, we, I mean, what do you got? It's in the I have stone. I have the uh, Conehead IPA. It's a Californian beer, and uh, I like the. Uh, I drink. I'm drinking in a nice glass. My friends that I'm staying at uh, keeps glasses in the freezer to keep them nice and crispy mm-hmm. yeah so a bit of a bit of a hack that i'll be stealing and well, i won't steal the glass so. i have got what have i got red bull zero breakfast of champions <laughs> <laughs> no i'm uh, i mean the reason i have red bull is because i'm i'm in the process of getting my coffee machine ready to sell and i've been cleaning it out and all this sort of stuff and i just don't want to make a coffee and then have to do that wait you're, s- you're selling your coffee machine i thought i was getting it <laughs> Well, yeah, that's what I meant. <laughs> Unless you'll take it dirty, that's fine. Um, so you're cleaning your coffee machine for me. That's kind. Yeah. Now I feel like an asshole. Um, Any listeners that want it, get out. It's it's mine. Yeah, please, please start the uh, high output AI bidding war for Elliot's old uh, kitchen appliances before he moves to the US. Uh, very good. Very good. Well, uh I mean, looking at our list, we got a whole smattering of things today. Yeah. And random you know, episode. For those listening, uh, this will probably be a little closer to the the newer format. We think we'd like to cover. A, I mean, there's so much every week. Yeah. Um, and we'd like to cover a few more topics. Uh, we'll probably occasionally do deep dives like we did in the past, but uh, there's just so much happening, and we want to cover that. So uh, we're going to try that out today. Let us know if you like it. If you do like the new format, uh, there should be timestamps so you can jump around and listen to what you want to listen to. Uh, but leave us a like, subscribe, do all that sort of stuff. Join our growing list of subscribers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you are a subscriber watching this, thank you so much. It's great to have you here uh, and hope you are enjoying the content. Uh, well, mate, shall we dive right in? Take it away. You're up first. You're up first, aren't you? I am up first. Uh, this is probably not... Unknown to everyone, but uh, NVIDIA is, or they've announced a new set of GPUs, the 40 series. Uh, So there's the 4080 and the 4090, uh, which look to be coming out fairly soon. Um, But, yeah, there's some interesting things around them, which I think is worth mentioning. Um, One being the price point. Uh, They're pretty expensive. I think $1,200. I can't remember if I was on the AU or the US site when I saw that for the 4090. and this is despite, you know, the big price drop in GPUs since uh, all the crypto mining stopped. There's also some weirdness around the RAM and the uh, amount of cores and things in the different models. It doesn't quite line up to previous releases, which I think is going to confuse a lot of people more than anything. What do you mean it doesn't line um, up? Look, 
so previously they used to sell um, like the 4080 and the 4090 in a couple of different models and there'd be a pretty consistent up in like the RAM and the cores between the different models. Uh, but now some of them are, you know, more RAM, less cores, less cores, more uh, more cores, less RAM and all this sort so of stuff. So the 4090 so think- isn't the clear performance winner out of the two, whereas in previous series it would have been. Yeah, 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 okay. exactly. Um, and look, if you're playing if you're playing games with it um, and setting it up for that sort of purpose, probably not going to be as big a deal. Um, these are very powerful cards either yeah. way. Um, but yeah, if you're if you're building AI models uh, or heaven forbid, you know, turning electricity into bitcoins, um, this might be a little confusing. Um, but the good news is that. Uh, there is an absolute glut of yeah. graphics cards on the second hard market now that uh, Ethereum swapped to proof of stake, and you know crypto in general is is a little less financially lucrative than it used to be. Nvidia's uh, earnings have been absolutely destroyed in the last two quarters because of it, and they're now running into some real inventory problems, both their own inventory and also secondhand inventory. People are selling a lot of mm. them in the secondhand market now. So, uh, yeah, there's a uh, I can't comment too much on the cards, but um, people are a little bit worried about the uh, financial performance in NVIDIA. But but do tell me, I've uh, I, the only the only research that I've done on these is a red hot like four minutes into a YouTube video um, tearing these down, and the kind of headline mm-hmm. of it was that these are. I think the headline was something along the lines of the most disappointing GPU launch ever, and NVIDIA is wasting away its massive lead in the GPU market. Um, with this release, any, any comments? Any, yeah. any, any on that? <laughs> well, look, I think uh, comment number one is go and watch Tom Short about driver trees, so you can get a better understanding about how these graphics cards are actually changing. Um, but that strikes me in the same vein as when everybody says the new iPhone release is terrible. Um, yes, it's getting more and more incremental because we're waiting for the next sort of major tech breakthrough, whether it's, uh, you know, more cores per watt Mm. or some way to pump more power to these machines or whatever. Um, but uh, I don't know. I don't think the NVIDIA's going to be destroyed is, is as accurate. I mean, people are putting their own graphics processes in their ASICs and things, but I don't know. No other major GPU manufacturer really is competing with them right now. And uh, what did uh, what did AMD just release? The, was it the Ray or Ray? Yeah, they have. I mean, see, they, this is kind of my point: is that like, I'm sure they had a release, and I'm sure it was good, but I don't know any of the details. Yeah. It just like it, it just does not bubble up to make headlines in the same way. And I'm not in the market for a new GPU. I'm actually selling a couple uh, of the older ones from my AI Listeners machine. are able to buy those, um, but not the coffee machine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. On the special special store. Um, and I highly recommend you throw in a hot chook when you buy it. Um, yeah, I don't know. Okay. I don't know. So... Uh... Talk, can you can you tell us a little bit about uh, how these differ from the previous generation or previous series of Nvidia's? Is um, other than the weird configurations, are they? Yeah, are li- they? Uh, there's a little. Oh, no, you keep going. Little, yeah, yeah, little, little more RAM uh, as standard. Usually the TI comes out and, and boosts the RAM capability, but these I think they've got about twelve to sixteen gigs of RAM depending on the model. 
um, more cores naturally, a little bit uh, better sort of power per core efficiency, nothing to write home about. There's a couple of new, uh, I guess, technologies in there around, uh, I believe it's, it's a ray tracing module and some other things, you know, mm. more specifically for gaming, uh, which do look quite cool. Yeah. Um, but yeah, look, I'm, I'm, I'm not using my GPUs for, for games these days. Um, but I don't know if I'd be racing out to buy one of these if I had a, a 3080 or a 3090. Mm. Still. And what about, what about the Ada Lovelace architecture? I was hearing about that. Obviously, an ode to the uh, uh, Ada herself, but like, what what is the Ada Lovelace architecture? Any idea? Uh, look, I will. I yeah, I'll admit that I'm like dry on details on that one. I I did see that, um, but I don't know. Well, I can t- something to look I can at. tell you that it is a breakthrough moment for 3D graphics. The Ada GPU architecture has been designed to provide revolutionary performance for ray tracing and AI based neural graphics. Heard it here first. <laughs> Oh, there you go. That's that must be the trade name yeah. for. Oh no, that's that. uh, that's all that's all original from me. Oh yeah, I imagined. <laughs> I imagined. So, any other any other thoughts, comments, uh, theories as to where this is heading for this um, in this space? Yeah, um, I don't think we're going to see anything too drastically different. I mean, these GPUs are still for consumers mostly to play games and mm. things. Um, we'll probably. I mean, we, we've got the industrial-grade GPUs as well, which NVIDIA makes and end up in a lot of data centers. If I was to hypothesize and, and you know, think of a, a business angle that's probably a little untapped, uh, it might be sort of middle-of-the-road, consumer-grade, non-graphics GPUs. So things for like video encoding, audio encoding, and deep learning on a consumer-grade platform mm. uh, is probably a bit of an untapped market and you can sort of see apple with their m1 m2 chips are trying to put capabilities in that space uh with codecs and and other bits and pieces i don't know if that'll end up i don't know if there's enough of a market there really um but that to me seems like the missing sort of middle ground do you think with like that bottom of the market um will go basically to the cloud and data center from a from a gpu point of view so, for example, if it's me um, and I, I'm on my laptop, right, and I don't actually need that much that much compute power, would mm. would I be in a would would there be a world where I'm essentially just purchasing compute from a from a cloud based server, some data center somewhere? Um, obviously, I think with gaming, what was it? Google Stadia tried to do this, but there was too much lag between the connection. But are we? In a, is it yeah. heading towards a world where like hardware yeah. is outsourced? A little bit. So, I mean, in the gaming world, um, Stadia, I think, I don't know if they've shut that down, but PlayStation in their new PlayStation subscription does stream some games in the US. Uh, and on the Switch, they just released a bunch of the older, or not older, actually quite recent Resident Evil games. Uh, but they also stream from the cloud because the console itself doesn't have the graphics processing mm-hmm. capability, um, which is interesting and cool. From a sort of I want to do deep learning perspective, I actually looked into this over the last couple of weeks because I decommissioning my well, I, I decommissioned a deep learning machine that I had um, and I was going to just do this whole cloud-based route. But then it turned out you know, there are offerings. So Paperspace, Google Colab mm. are 
sort of Jupyter notebooks on GPUs <clears throat> that are fairly good to use. Um, and you can rent a bunch of GPU machines at a fairly reasonable cost. Um, but a lot of the times I found that the product offering just wasn't quite right. So, you know, you'd have a good GPU at a reasonable cost, you know, a buck or two an hour, uh, but you'd have a limit of five gig of storage. Mm. And if you're training a big, you know, the model I wanted to use it on was just exploring one of these Kaggle competitions. The raw data set was 350 yeah. gig. So you just, it's just immediately pointless. Um, so they exist. And, and if you're certainly, you know, if you're doing a course or something like that, uh, it's a great resource. You know, Google Colab, I think is, is pretty awesome. You can start a notebook in your Google yeah. drive. It runs on spare GPU capacity and you don't have to think about it too much. Um, but I think you kind of get to a point where if you're doing experiments all the time, you know, I've been running stuff most of this week on the machine that I have. It's probably still more economical to pick up an old 1080, 2080 and, and run it off that. Okay. Okay. So it's, uh, it, do you think there's a demand? Sorry, I'll, I'll pose it this way. Do you think there's a demand for that or uh, there isn't even a demand for that? I think, I think there is a demand for it. Um, I was reading a discussion on a forum recently about people wanting it because um, Google Colab is sort of switching its its pricing model a little bit. And there's a lot of people are saying they want something mm -hmm. like this, uh, but there's just nothing that quite fits in. Especially needs. like uh, just for like managing capacity for the moments where you do need something more powerful as well. Like, so you don't have to go out and buy a whole new bit of hardware just for like one single model instance or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And I just think there's, there's almost like an ease of use gap. Um, you know, Google could very easily set up something where you could send it a job and they have this in their ML mm. engine and it'll just run that training job and spit you back the results and throw you out the logs. But getting started with that is a bit of a headache. It's certainly more than just spinning up a notebook and running it mm. as you go. Uh, I think somebody needs to solve the usability problem more than the technology yeah, problem. Exactly. Well, if there's any listeners out there looking for an idea, come chat to Elliot and I will be the first customers and uh, Elliot will, Elliot yeah, will uh, invest his coffee machine money into it. <laughs> yeah. No, look, if, genuinely, if there is somebody out there looking to solve this problem, I will commit right now to at least opening an account at 10 bucks a month and using your platform if it's good. And, you know, if it is really good, I'll, I'll pay more than that yeah. for sure. Um, yeah, oh, cool. Good, good. Next. Um, next on the list. Yes. Emerging capabilities. Emerging capabilities. Uh, that's what I wrote down. <laughs> Is that, uh, you finishing your AI course or, uh, we talking uh no, about I've been able to learn how to speak recently. So yeah, it's emerging. It's an emerging <laughs> skill that I've developed. <laughs> very good. Very good. Um, so I came across this this week and it's called, cool. uh, it's a paper this week and, uh, from Google Research, DeepMind, separate entities, um, Stanford University and UNC Chapel Hill, um, whoever they are. And it's called Emergent Abilities of Large Language Models. That's a pretty cool paper um, because the idea, and mm -hmm. basically the idea is that there are skills, certain skills within models that emerge at a certain size, size being parameters slash uh, compute power applied, um, which is a very, very interesting non-linear relationship within these models um, and poses a bunch of really cool questions about 
what the future could be. So uh, I wanted to chat about this today because uh, there's a couple of things I wanted to chat about, mainly around what they did to investigate these things and what it could mean for the future development. Because if uh, all we need to do is make things more powerful, uh, what to see what uh, to see new abilities come out, what 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 does the future hold? So. That's what I want to chat to about today for the topic one. Yeah, very cool. 100%, man. It seems to be the trend. It's like just make stuff bigger. And uh, one of the one of the things I've been doing this week is building a language transformer. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm hoping to put a little series together um, around some of these more modern models. But uh, I built just a small language transformer on the uh, – <clears throat> wiki2 data set, which is sort of a subset of some Wikipedia pages. And uh, look, it, it works. It'll spit out text, but it's just, it's nonsense. Uh, and it's amazing to see the difference between those, you know, even with a very similar architecture to GPT-3, mm. a small data set and a small number of parameters, like it, it is quite a radical shift to those large-scale models. Yeah, it, 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 it's a really, really cool paper. I would suggest people read it. Um, so uh, they first off started in this paper uh, defining what an emergent capability was, and they defined it as a capability that is present in larger models, but not in smaller models. And this definition came from some original philosophical definition of emerging consciousness in the 70s, which was like small, like quantitative changes in model architecture, model in a model, in an architecture in the compute would result in qualitatively different changes even um so you know adding one percent might increase intelligence by 200 percent for some reason for some for some example um and so there's kind of three ways that they figured uh they could define what a large model is they could define it by the amount of compute they could define it by the number of parameters involved and um they could define it by the data set used to train it I should have said as well that this was all on natural language processing models, by the way. Um, and what they ended up doing is they just looked at the compute and they also looked at the parameters and then turned out that those two are pretty correlated. So like if you've got more parameters, you're probably going to have more compute. Um, so it's basically interchangeable. Um, but they didn't look at what uh, the effect of increasing the size of data sets were on these things. Um, what they did was they looked at a bunch of different uh, models. They looked at Lambda, they looked at GPT-3, they looked at Gopher, they looked at Chinchilla, and they looked at Palm. And they gave all these models a bunch of few-shot prompted tasks to complete. So they did things like word unscrambled, figures of speech, multi-step reasoning, basic arithmetic, and stuff like that. And they did this at the different parameters, uh, parameters or compute available for each of these models. And like in all of these tasks, it's crazy. There's like, they compared it to random guessing and all of these models perform mm -hmm. like worse than random guessing. And then there's always a point, uh, like for example, one of them was a 10 to the 23 flops that suddenly it just like skyrocketed up and would be way, way, way better than random guessing at any point. Um, and yeah. this was basically across all of the tasks they gave them as well. Um, and then as well, the second thing that they did is they did it with augmented uh, prompting strategies. So augmented prompting strategies are when you prompt it in a different way um, to kind of like almost 
help train it through the initial, uh, prompt it through the initial uh, problem. Um, there's different types of them. One's called chain of thought and one's called scratch pad and then one's called instruction following as well. So they did these different things as well. And once again, they showed that like, uh, um, if you compared it to normal few shot, uh, few shot, um, few shot prompting versus this chain, uh, augmented prompting, once again, there was still like nothing, nothing, nothing. And then it would just hit a certain number of compute or parameters and bang, it would just shoot up and perform well, well, well above random, uh, random guessing. Um, and what it shows is like the kind of conclusion of this is that like at certain scales, abilities and skills that weren't actually uh, trained into the model appear because these are all few shot or augmented prompt, uh, prompting. So like these weren't trained in skills and it's just crazy to think about like if you look at these graphs how much appeared at the 10 to the 22 10 to the 23 flops first of compute like what would happen if we put another 10 orders of magnitude on that what what new things would appear in this and it kind of like says that if we just stopped researching ai at the moment and just focused on improving compute we would still see a lot of development in the space <clears throat> yeah for sure I think this has actually disheartened a lot of people. Um, there was a similar paper called, I think, Scale is All You Need. And I think it got a lot of people thinking that, like, the era of <clears throat> discovery is uh, is over mm. in machine learning because the winners will be the open AIs and the Googles and the DeepMinds with thousands mm. and thousands of GPUs, um, which I would definitely push back on. Um, I was, I'm listening to a book at the moment on sort of just the history of scientific discovery. Uh, and there was similar sentiment, uh, when they discovered the electron, they said, physics is done. There will be nothing left to discover. You should just quit your jobs right now. So I would, I would caution people against thinking that, um, this is the end, but I think what'll be interesting is, you know, we've talked about this on the show before is, you know, let's take LS, uh, let's take NLP as an example, you know, old school NLP was convolution models or recurrent neural networks and now it's mainly transformers and you know it'll be interesting to see how these different capabilities emerge with newer architectures because i think there's still new mm. work to be done that says okay if you're using a transformer it's 23 flops for this capability but i've got a new architecture that's slightly different and now it's 15 absolutely flops because something about this new architecture is, is making this you know, better. And I think that's a much more interesting way to compare architectures than what they do currently, which is you know, pick a metric, pick a data set and show how it uh, performs on that data set, which is often wrought with sort of data set bias or, or anything So you're, you're 100% right there. And, and this is like one of the points of the discussion, which is against the all that matters is scale. Because they, they basically say that like, just because something appears at a certain scale doesn't preclude it from appearing at a lower scale of compute. And in fact, mm. this is actually a great way to for like to develop the space is to like throw scale at the problem to see what we can make create and then work backwards to see how we can then drastically reduce the compute required to get that skill or that ability from the models. Um, and then they, and they give lots of examples as well. Mm. Like, there's a model out there called Superglue with 20 billion parameters is similar to GP, it, uh, 
um, in certain areas. It's very, very similar and outperforms GPT-3 at 175 billion parameters um, in certain tasks. So like scale isn't the only, scale is a, is a path, but it's not the only path. Mm. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, I remember, you know, most of my early work was in image models and there was this whole idea around building these large complex image models and then distilling those models into smaller, more manageable models. So <clears throat> let's say OpenAI builds a 1 trillion parameter model. You know what its capabilities are in, in certain language learning tasks. Uh, and then you use that model and new data as a sort of combined way to train a new model with the goal of repli replicating that behavior, but also with a penalty yeah. on how big it is. So it's trying to optimize itself down to a much more compressed version of that yeah. same model. I suppose the only thing I else, uh, the other thing I want to talk about is like why they, they kind of talked about why do they think this emergence occurs, like these new abilities emerge. Uh, and basically, because I haven't asked you this question and I wanted to, is they said more compute allows more layers to help step through problems that have more, sequ uh, more sequential computation steps. Can you explain that to me? I didn't really understand that one. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, if we take this back to, let's say, let's say the, like, uh, <clears throat> the old school sort of linear neural network where it's just like, a bunch of weights and then another layer and then another layer and then another layer. Like let's put transformers mm -hmm. aside and all this other sort of stuff for the minute. What tends to happen is that at the very top layer, it forms sort of combinations of your raw data. So it might say that like predicting the price of bananas <clears throat> might be a little bit to do with the amount of lemons we harvested and the last sale price of limes and the temperature in the Caribbean. And then it says, okay, cool. That'll give me some vague new metrics that I can use in my calculations, but I want to go a step deeper. And we say, okay, maybe it's the square of that parameter that I just calculated plus, you know, this parameter and this parameter. And what it does is it allows you to sort of form more and more complex combinations mm -hmm. of parameters as you step through the problem and each layer takes the data from the layer before and forms new parameters. So if you wanted to do uh, X squared, you'd have your X layers and then you'd have another layer which multiplies yeah. two Xs together um, as a very sort of contrived and simple example. I think what they're saying here is that you need a certain number of yep. steps and the ability to backtrack through those steps in order to do some of these complex behaviors and having more layers yep. enables you to do that. Uh, what I, I'd be really interested to see is, <clears throat> you know, often these layers uh, get bigger and bigger and get more complex as they go. To see some comparison of, okay, we'll give it more layers, but we'll drastically restrict the amount of capacity at each layer and try and work out sort of where those sweet spots are in terms of, you know, we have 15 layers, but they're all very, very mm. lightweight. They don't do very much of their own, but we need 15 layers to make it work versus one layer with 15 yep. times the capacity uh, gets a yeah, pretty yeah. good estimate like, of the same thing. What is thing. the minimum number of layers required? Yeah, exactly. Another uh, interesting reason why they say emergence occurs like this is actually just from the way that we measure success of completing a problem. Like in a lot of these problems, there is multiple steps to reasoning out the answer. And the way the metrics are set up, 
if there's five steps and you do four correctly and the fifth one wrong, you're still wrong. Um, and it's, and there's no comparison mm. to, and you're, you're marked as wrong as the model that would do three steps and get the last two wrong, even though it's technically got one step more correct. So there could be like a little bit of like metric, uh, bias in it as well. That shows that suddenly at a certain level, it's actually, uh, solving the problem rather than, uh, step solving the steps correctly. So that's one, one, one reason that they give to it, uh, which would be pretty investigatable in my opinion. So, uh, like, um, hopefully someone goes and does that work. And then the next reason they said is just like mm. more parameters just equals better memorization and recall. So, which just make Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and I think this is the hard thing to prove in any of these is like, is it, and it, it becomes a bit of a philosophical question of, you know, is this model just memorizing yeah. certain uh, yeah. things that it's seen before? Or is it genuinely yeah. reasoning through problems? Um, but, you know, you can ask me the same question. I'm, I wouldn't be able to give you a good answer. Yeah. But it's really cool because um, obviously scale itself is just, it shows that scale itself could be a pathway for development. Obviously, that's not the only way. Obviously, we're going to run into bottlenecks pretty quickly as well on this stuff. Um, but uh, it is interesting to think about if we make, uh, like what happens when we like distill the effective steps within these large models, take it down to a significantly smaller model and then put the same size and capability and compute onto those smaller models again and see what emerges the second time around. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, cool, cool That's paper, cool. we suggest reading it. Very nice. And it shall be in yeah, the, the show notes. I, I, I made one that said, <laughs> <laughs> link to Elliot's coffee machine, eBay, a Gumtree account. <laughs> Very good. Uh, Gumtree, for those who are not in Australia, well, is like a Craigslist kind of thing. But, um, oh, but yeah, we should be more um, cognizant of this because like 80% of our viewers are US, apparently, according to the, the YouTubes. Mm. Yeah. It's like Facebook Marketplace or Craigslist or whatever. Um, yeah, nice. Nice, nice, nice. Number two. All right. Uh, number three. Number, number three, two few. Isn't it? <clears throat> yeah, very good. So um, this one I think will blur together with a couple of yeah. these others uh, coming up. But uh, Getty Images has released a statement saying stock photography on their website cannot be AI generated. So if you're a stock photography generator and you're selling images on Getty Images, uh, it can't be made with AI, which is uh, an interesting yep. position to take. Um, some people have speculated that, uh, and it, I mean, this makes sense logically, is that Getty Images is kind of pissed that a lot of these big training sets have Getty Image content in them. Really? Uh, including yes, the watermarks. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you can uh, you can tweak the prompts a little bit and then say things that'll put a blurry version of the Getty Images watermark on them. Um, and the theory is that if you're going to go after OpenAI or Stable Diffusion, you can't also have a platform full of AI-generated content uh, and have good grounds to stand on, um, which I think is an interesting theory. Um it may also be they yep. want to release their own. Uh, so we'll, we'll see how that goes, but I think it's the start of what we're going to see, which is, a, you know, the world, the commercial world that's not 
as invested in the technical side of things here, adapting and developing new regulations, licensing framework for all of this. AI like it was only content. going one way for Getty. They were either going to buy one of these models outright and take all the rights to it and just pump their site full of them, or they were going to completely ban them. Um, well, or make their own, as yeah. you said, but like, which is kind of the version of the first, but I think, I really hope they're making their own. I really do. I think they're going to be in a lot of trouble if they try and stop this. Um, I th if they yeah, were playing, I, I would agree. They're in a pretty If they were playing in spot. the like super premium end of the market where it's, we want very tailored images. I would understand why you would never bring AI into it where it's because you could start to claim, you know, human real photos, but they are a volume commodity business. They are, they are there to hold yeah. every single photo possible that you could possibly want to use. Um, and it's their job to provide as many options for you as possible. I think, uh, just trying to remember if it is Getty Images or somebody else, but one of these uh, stock photo providers provides a lot of sort of real people mm. photos. Like if you want a picture of, you know, some yeah. celebrity in some scenario, they'll license a photo of that celebrity. Um, and, yeah, you know, I can imagine that beyond just, you know, unicorn in Paris fighting crime or whatever for somebody's blog, if you get a good sort of deep fake of somebody and blow out all of these celebrity images, that's going to have downstream ramifications for them when somebody says, hey, this picture of... Uh, you know, whoever I think of who. <laughs> jo Johnny Depp riding a unicorn is clearly fake. Uh, and you know, Johnny Depp takes you to court. Yeah. So yeah, I don't know. Another possibility, but yeah, I just, I thought it was yeah. interesting. We'll keep an eye on that one and see where they land. With I that think it's just like generally really interesting that the, like the beachhead of this AI versus human war is being fought on the image generation front. Um. Yeah. I mean, so do I, it seems not like the most valuable business case to me. It's, it's, I mean, I guess, um, co-pilot and stuff around code generation is having mm. similar discussions. Um, but yeah, image generation didn't strike me as the area where well, this would yeah. be such a big deal. I wonder like, <clears throat> for those that were, you know, in the, before the, before the second AI winter, when they were considering like use cases for AI, were they going, you know what, natural language processing and image generation are going to be like the two biggest, like when did, when did these explode into the like most broadly explored use, ca use cases? Yeah. I, I mean, I think Ian Goodfellow's release of the, the paper around GANs, was probably the big moment for mm. image generation. You know, there was always a little bit of work around super sampling and, and upscaling photos and um, noise reduction and things like that. But generating brand new realistic looking images from nothing, I think really saw a huge uptick after the early GAN papers and, and now a lot of these transformer models and yeah. diffusion models as well. Wow. No, that's yeah. cool. We'll keep an eye on this space, definitely. Um, 
For sure. And speaking of cool image generation, tell yeah, me about so this I wanted, Blender I wanted plugin. to talk about two I things. One is something called Char, Char, Charlie, <clears throat> which is the um, Child-E, um, and it's stable diffusion on your Mac in a single click. And then another one is a GitHub. Uh, someone built a on GitHub a uh, an add-in to Blender, which is the open source free uh, kind of like uh, it's like Revit, right? Um, I have, or is it more? Well, it's, well, it, yeah, it's more like Maya and things like 3D that. Modeling. Like it's three D modeling. It has a lot of capabilities. Yeah. yeah, it's honestly one of my favorite pieces of open source software. I have no artistic capability, but it's yeah, so, so fun to use. Um, basically, in the last couple of weeks, there's been two, uh, two tools made available to people without a coding background to start to like play around with all of these. Uh, image generation and Charlie is just uh, straight onto your Mac, just a, uh, just a, like, uh, a, a, like a piece of, like a downloadable piece of software that you can use to prompt and play around with it. Um, but then the interesting one is Blender now has this add in where you can just simply ask it to create, you know, if you were creating a model of a room or something and you're an architect and you wanted to do a wallpaper, you could ask it to do, a uh, brick, a brick style wallpaper painted in Van Gogh dots or something, and it would plaster that on, uh, create that image for you, and plaster it onto the wall for you, and you could use it within Blender. Um, and to me, this is not these like these tools are pretty cool, and for people who use these areas, will uh, use these to, uh, play in these areas, will find them very useful. But I think what's was interesting to me is just like suddenly, very quickly, these tools are available to a lot more people. And it's in Blender at the moment, but how long until Adobe Photoshop yeah. has one? How long until like the Autodesk uh, community have these things in there? And suddenly there's big, big commercial yeah. licenses for these image, image generation models. Yeah, for sure. I did see somebody built a stable yeah. diffusion for Photoshop plugin, which actually looks quite cool. Um, and, you know, big shout out to the uh, person who, or people, I can't remember if it was just one person or, or multiple, who put together this Charlie thing. I, I read a little bit of the story. Um, so BuildSpace, which was originally sort of a Web3, learn to do Web3 online sort of thing, uh, put up a prize for anybody who could build a self-contained Mac app for wow. Stable Diffusion to allow a lot more people to to play with it. And uh, this person, guy or girl, I don't know, um, never done any AI work before, uh, just said, I'll have a go at that, uh, and put it together, worked out how it all worked, and, and released it. And I think it was like maybe like 10 grand or something for putting that together, which I think is just, that's awesome. Like, I, I think to me, the fact that this model yeah. is open source, weights available. I mean, it's just absolutely decimated yeah. the Dali business model and created so much cool and interesting stuff. No, in and it's interesting, like, where this will take the business yeah. model. And like, how quickly this is all happening as well is, like, it feels like Dali was, like, released within the last couple of months and now suddenly, and, you know, it was super hush-hush, secret, wait list, only, like, a few people got access to it. And now suddenly, like, I can just download something right now and play around yeah. with it. Uh, and it's gonna yeah, hundred like, percent. You go. I, I yeah, I still haven't gotten my spot on the Dali 
uh, beta. I've been on the wait list yeah, pretty much crazy. since it came and, out. And um, as you said, what this is going to do for the business model, because now suddenly it's going to be, now there's free versions available for it, right? It, like, I think this is going to push all of these models away from the consumer, like interacting them and into the like design tool world and trying to like be the sole supplier of AI generated images for them. So like, for example, like Adobe, like to be the supplier of AI generated images for Adobe. And I think that Adobe owns Shutterstock from memory as well. But like, Look, if Adobe hadn't mm-hmm. just spent all their cash on um, Figma, I'd, I'd be thinking that they should be looking at snapping up one of these and bringing it in-house. Yeah, 100%, man. And I, I think what's interesting here is that you know this seems to be, in my opinion, moving towards a lot of the software models that we see in sort of hybrid open source projects. So the model, let, let's take Stable Diffusion as an example. The model and its weights are available for free and you can run it on your machine if you want to. But we also have an API version where you can send a prompt and you can get an image back. It runs on our hardware. We'll do the support. Uh, we might have a slightly newer version of the model than is the one made available and it costs this much money. So if you're a, a Tom or an Elliot and you want to mess around with this, go ahead, do whatever you want. If you have AI capabilities, run it in-house. But if you're a you know, massive enterprise client and you don't want to worry about supporting this, you just want to swap text for images, here's an API that you can use and you can pay us for that use. I think that model is going to be conducive to a lot more uh, interesting progress and a much more sustainable business model in the long run for a lot of these providers. Because I think the people who do all this work should get compensated. There's been a lot of work that's gone into this. Um, so I don't think purely free is going to work in the long term. It's great if you can. Um, and, but I don't think purely paywalled is going to work either, or the sort of Dali model of you can use it a little bit. Um, I think let people hack around, you know, let people build that stuff. And then you can see, you know, from, from the team that builds stability now, if they look, okay, there's this blender product, there's this Photoshop plugin, there's this, that, and the other. They're going to get a really good idea about what the market wants, and they can then start to, you know, ship tools either directly or as services like to back up like, those tools. We can sit here and talk about use cases till the cows come home, but like the way to do it is exactly what they've done now, which is like it's available, it's free, people see, and they're going to see exactly where people are wanting to use it and how they're wanting to use it, and then wrap the business model around that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I totally agree, mm. uh, and I think we'll see more of that. And, you know, there's, there's sort of what I've noticed in a lot of these setups is that, you know, stable diffusion is great, but people are pairing it with sort of GANs that are known to take images and improve the mm. quality of faces in those images uh, yeah. and reduce certain types of artifacts and all these things, which is you know, just all these bolt-on services above yeah. and beyond, which uh, I think is, is oof, very much oof. new. You just gave me an idea. There's going to like, like Tom's hot prediction – there's going to be, you know, general models. Then people are going to build like accretive models on top of that for, as you said, you know, like bumping up the resolution or changing the face within an image or something like that, or like, you know, changing a very specific part of the image. And at first off, there's going to be an ecosystem where you like, you know, you, you know, the, the app store where you used to pay money to like download that app. You're going to pay 
to maybe use or you get five free for that with that particular creative algorithm. And then eventually someone's just going to come in and wrap this all up and you can access all the algorithms for ten ninety nine a month or whatever it is. Anyway, that's a that's my yeah. prediction. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, yeah, no, yeah. no doubt, man. And, you know, you can slap them all together and, yeah. and use it as some no-code tool and build a service around it, for sure. For sure. Um yeah, I think this this lets us or leads us pretty well into the the next topic here, which is um, OpenAI released a new model mm-hmm. uh, called Whisper. So it's a speech to text model. Uh, works in a couple of different languages, um, but it's a, a nice new big model. And they've taken the route of releasing it, releasing the weights, and just letting people mess around with it, um, which I thought. Number one, it's a cool new model. It'll be interesting. I might uh, have a go with it, maybe maybe do a stream sometime over the weekend and, and play with it. People want to see how that works. Um, but it's I think it's nice that it's open source. I had a little bit of a look into the metrics. Um, it's quite good, um, but it's not state-of-the-art on any of these specific tests that people use to test these models. But what it does seem to do well is perform close to state-of-the-art oh, cool. across a number of different tests. So people will, will build, mm. you know, translation tests or noisy environment tests and things like that. And people will build very specific models for that test, which outperform this model. Uh, but often those models don't perform well on other tests. I mean, the translation model doesn't perform well on the ni- noisy environments test and vice versa, whereas this one seems quite robust. What was, so what uh, was the, like, I think that's cool. What I, was the innovation? I think it's nice how they've released that. Uh, I haven't had a chance to look into it yet. Yeah. I'll, I'll, once I do this stream, I'll, I'll dive into it a little bit more. But uh, yeah, the thing that really caught my eye was how this is a shift in compared to the way that they released uh, the mm. DALI model. We got little, uh, little puppies. What do you reckon about it all? He loves. Yeah. Does he? Is he going to be? Will he be doing a live stream of implementing? Uh, yes. We'll see if it knows how to do yeah, translation good. of uh, dog speak. Yum! Slipped all over my face. Yum! All right. I mean, that was a short one. I didn't have too much to say there. I'll dive into that a bit more. But uh, tell me, mate. So I got all excited about this. Uh, There was a little little report that came out from McKinsey that said the next frontier for AI in China could add 600 billion to its economy. Uh, You know, that's a lot. 600 billion is the size is like adding another Shanghai to the GDP of China. So I was like, okay, cool. You got Mm -hmm. my attention. I'm going to take a read through this. Um, And basically, the answer was driverless cars. That 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 seemed to be the answer. Um, they basically, look, I mean, I got excited yeah. for the report and it hasn't really blown me away with its detail. Um, but they kind of figured out that there's 380 billion of value in automotive, another 115 in manufacturing, 80 in enterprise. And then I think this is the smallest one that like blew my mind, 25 billion USD in healthcare and life sciences is the opportunity, the total estimated economic value opportunity. 
in China specifically. Is which, that in China you know, specifically? Twenty five billion in healthcare and life sciences go is equal to about twenty five bucks per person. I, I, I reckon, I reckon yeah. there's a tool out there that could generate more than twenty five dollars of you of value per person. I would say so. I mean, I think the interesting thing about healthcare in China, you know, it's it's been several years now since I've been there, but I was in Shanghai and, and we went and saw a couple of the hospitals and they just operate at scales that are just, you know, they do as many, uh, this was for some prostate work we were doing at the time, they do as many radical prostatectomies in a year, yeah. in, I think it was in a month, than all of Brisbane yeah. does in a year. Um, so they're like, I think to me, I think the benefit is probably that they are, these are like well-tuned machines with a ton of human mm -hmm. resources in them already. Um, whereas the driving problem, you know, when, uh, there's a lottery to get a number plate oh. if you live in Shanghai, uh, cause there's too many cars in the road. Uh, and there was a big initiative that if you bought an electric vehicle, you were guaranteed a number plate. Uh, which saw a huge spike in the number of electric vehicles. There may be a similar plan for automated vehicles, but yeah, number of cars on the road, I think is a big, big problem in, in the more populated yeah, well, cities of China. It's just that out of this 600 billion, 300, 335 billion is, is given to autonomous self-driving vehicles. And most of it's from a reduction in financial losses from avoiding crashes. Um, it's just like, like the findings from this mm -hmm. report would just like sum up to be very suspicious. Like, oh, we improved things by two or three percent in a lot in a number of different areas. Not like we like AI, which we believe has mm -hmm. the ability ability to like fundamentally change how these things are done. Like either wipe out or wipe out entire yeah. industries or create trillion dollar new ones. Um, and so, yeah, I. I I agree. And I mean, the thing that always annoys me about this, you know, we need AI for self, fully self-driving cars is like 90% of the time, the answer <laughs> is build more trains. Like you're going to get the same effect. It's going to be cheaper, more reliable, more scalable to just build more trains. Yeah. Um, but people don't yeah, seem to like, like trains. Last mile logistics is still a thing for AI. <laughs> yeah. 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 100%. 100%. I mean, it's a big space. There's a lot of people working in it. There is some movement, but it seems to have slowed down. I mean, Tesla's fully self-driving set up and a lot of the other competitors seem to have uh, yeah. slowed down a bit over the last couple of years. I think people are realizing it's yeah. a harder problem than they gave it credit for. Yeah. So look, the, yeah. the report, what I just wanted to say about this report is that like 600 billion seems like a really low number to me. Um, there's a, like a couple of cool different use cases that they talk about and extrapolate on them. So for example, reducing drug discovery from five and a half years on average, like reducing that by 20% and like the cost of it. Um, there's a couple of like example of companies that have been able to like help discover new drugs for like a million bucks and things like that. Um, but I just feel like all mm. this stuff is like, no, but if we actually nail the problem, this will fundamentally change how this industry operates rather than add 300 billion to the industry. So. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, to, to the credit of McKinsey, that's probably a very hard yeah. thing to estimate, you know, like blue sky breakthrough innovation. How's that going to change the, the fundamentals? 
Whereas if you're trying to yeah. get a few self-driving clients <laughs> consulting money, telling them that there's this much money and it's it's just some some tweaks we can make to your existing process, probably sells more consulting hours. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, take a read take a read of the report to like understand a little bit more of AI in China. Um, but the six hundred billion is a bit clickbaity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as as all industry reports are. But did you know that most executives? Did you know that this podcast will add to the economy of China by twenty twenty five? Yeah, mm-hmm. it's true. So if, my if source is an continue, expert interview. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you think about the the gear that we've purchased to do the podcast, was probably made in China, so it added to the economy. And if you yeah. take that one event and extrapolate it with no consideration for whether you should, then yes, yeah, definitely. Good. Well, it's, well wow. We haven't definitely. finished the episode. We've added 600 billion to the world economy. Go us. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's, <laughs> we put the high output in high output AI. That's for sure. That is for sure. Um, a couple of little small ones to wrap us out. Um, there's a new fast AI course that is starting soon. It's being run out of University of Queensland, which is quite cool. So Jeremy Howard uh, is a Queensland man now. Do you know uh, him? Which is awesome. So Tom and I went to UQ. I've, I've hung out with him a couple of times. We went to the football. We watched the Broncos play. Um, of all, all weird possible things you could do with uh, Jeremy Howard. It was an event. Uh, it was quite cool. I was there with one of my other mates who used to play for um, I can't remember what team he used to play for, but he used to play uh, in the NRL. So he had a pretty good understanding. That was of his understanding of AI. All things going on there. Um, okay. Actually, not too bad. He runs a, a sort of yeah. logistics and, you know, in Brandon. Yeah. Yeah. Um, hopefully he doesn't mind me mentioning his name. Uh, whatever. Um so yeah, this new fast AI course, it's sort of an extension of the introduction to deep learning course, uh, and they're building a stable diffusion model. So going through all the different parts of that model and, and putting them together. Mm. Um, so it's being run out of UQ, which our, is where Tom and I uh, did our studies, which is exciting. Alma mater. Yeah, no, I never know what that uh, term actually means, I, whether it has special meaning. But anyway, I did my undergrad there. I did my PhD there. So it's uh, near and dear to my heart. Um, so check that one out if you haven't already, uh, it's being run online, uh, and it is eventually coming out for free, uh, in a few months. So if you are short on the dollary dues and you want to wait for that one, uh, check it out. But a lot of that yes. fast AI content is very, very high quality, very high teaching quality. Um, so definitely. I've nearly finished my Coursera one, so I'll one do it. Out. I'll do it and I'll, uh, record a bit of it and release a video on it. Little summary, little uh, oh, little review cool. for anyone who's interested. Um, and also, Alma Mater nice. directly translates nice. as nourishing mother or bountiful mother. <laughs> yep, yep. Old mama, yeah. old mama UQ. Um, and then the last one that I had here was uh, a cool model, which uh, I think you'll. Uh, like mm-hmm. as well as this Act Terrible. One model, so it's a t- text to action model uh, that was released by. 
oh, I didn't write this down, but I was on their website this morning. Um, but they've released this tech demo. Uh, and let me just get the name up because we should mm-hmm. uh, adept, adepts.ai. It's in the show notes. Um, but you put in a task that you want it to execute and it then takes control of your browser and oh, wow. aims to execute that task. And they've released a tech demo. It doesn't work on everything right now, but you know, they say, for example, you're on one of the housing websites, Zwillow or whatever else, and you're like, find me an apartment in uh, downtown New York between this much and this much that allows pets and is 15 minutes walking distance to the nearest subway station. And it knows how to interact with the web pages, look at what's on the screen, Holy shit. Uh, and continue that process. It and, just, and it's the next version of Zapier. Uh, and, but uh, if this, then that. Yeah, man. It, uh, but some of the cooler examples I saw, and this probably speaks to how much of a massive nerd I am, is they have a plugin for Google Sheets, and they have like a bunch of columns, and they're like, "Oh, can you add a uh, average revenue and to. median revenue column to the spreadsheet?" And it'll just do it. it it's yeah, I think it's so awesome uh, to see this sort of stuff. This sort yeah. of you know, lightweight automation type stuff. Builds I think. into my theory, yeah. my running theory. It's very cool. Basic analysis is just going to continually be more and more automated until there's only the like the hard stuff left. Yeah, definitely, definitely, and yeah, you know, it reminds me of that uh, Google tech demo from a couple of years ago at I/O, which was the oh, voice yeah. assistant that could call and make bookings for you, um, which I think was is very cool and. You know, you could tell it you want a haircut and this is when you're available and it'd do the back and forth with the real human. Um, yeah, I can imagine there's a lot of lightweight sort of scraping work and yeah. data collection work and stuff that this model will make really, really easy. Um, and, you know, for it, let's say you have no use of your arms or something like that and you need, you know, you want access to websites yeah. that aren't the most accessible. Um, models like this could really change the way people are able to interact with technology, which I think is yeah, such a so fantastic cool. outcome of some um, of this research. Is it, well, can I use it? Because I literally yeah. need to basically do what you did, but change the word from New York to Sydney. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll send you the link. I can't remember okay. if you can get access to the preview or if it was just the it. video demo. I'm trying to find but, my place uh, in Sydney and record it. Yeah, it looks and then not tell everyone which one it is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Very cool. Very cool. That's well, good. yeah, I mean, man, that's a yeah, uh, big week. What do we cover? So we covered NVIDIA's new graphics. We then talked about emerging AI trends. We then talked about, um, what was the next one we talked about? Oh yeah. Uh, Oh, yeah. Getting images and then and building Blender. in with Charlie and the Blender plugins of how these tools are now available. Um, OpenAI Whisper, which uh, I'm excited for the live stream. Uh, the last one got mm-hmm. some good views. It was popular. So I'm excited to see the next one. Then a random McKinsey report on China. And now finally, and then the fast AI course from our, from our nourishing mother, the our alma mater, the UQ. And then now Tom's new tool to find his new place to live in, adept.ai. So, and uh, breaking the next, the next level of automation. Exactly. Uh, no code automation. Yes. Yes. 
Definitely. Well, mate, we covered a lot this week. Any any last keep, things you want to plug? Just before keep checking we, out the uh, channel. There's uh, there's nothing goodbye else to plug except that these days. It's only the channel. Good, good. Yes, please do all that YouTube stuff. Uh, connect out. We are slowly working on getting yeah. audio versions of these podcasts up somewhere. Uh, but if you're watching this now, it's probably still on video. Um, do tune in to the live shows. Uh, if you've got any topics you want us to cover, leave them in the comments. Um, but yeah, other than that, thank you all for being here, all for listening. And awesome stuff. hope you have a great week. Bye, everyone. See you next week. See you.